the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. With us for this Wednesday edition of Lifeline. Greg Roberts with you. We've got a full and jam packed program tonight, so we're going to get right down to cases because there's a lot of important business and many important stories that we need to get to for your benefit. First and foremost, no doubt, and if you haven't heard this, I suppose you've either just come back from a place that has no internet um, or you've been under a rock lately. Today, the World Health Organization finally declaring officially that the outbreak of COVID-19 coronavirus is an official global pandemic. Phil Hewlett has more. Well, Phil Hewlett had more, but apparently he doesn't, and that's the way the ball bounces. Here's what I can tell you. The number of COVID-19 coronavirus cases is rising right now in the United States and around the globe. There are more than 1,100 confirmed cases in the U.S., at least 30 deaths so far worldwide, The death toll is approaching 4,600, and more than 124,000 people have been infected in some 22 countries and regions. Meanwhile, of course, we know that there has been fallout at a number of levels, not least of which has been on Wall Street. Today, the record 11-year-long run of the bulls on Wall Street seems over. Stocks moved into bear territory, losing more than 20% since setting a record high back on February the 12th. A bad day on Wall Street got worse as the health organization, WHO, World Health Organization, officially declared the COVID-19 coronavirus outbreak a pandemic. Let's get a look at how the markets reacted. Joining me now is 30-plus year financial manager and retirement planning specialist Pat Fitucci with... And it's, boy, we're just on a roll today. Give him a call back. Uh, either that or that's what Pat has to say about the markets. <laughs> I wouldn't at all blame him, i got to tell you. Um, a rough ride today on Wall Street. The Dow Jones Industrial Average shedding 1,467 points to end the day at 23,550. The S&P falling 141 points to close at 2741. Meanwhile, the NASDAQ shedding 392 points to close at 79.52. So um, all around a rough day and certainly causing all of us, if not a little bit of concern, at least uh, a opportunity to revisit issues related to where we're at with our investments, what kind of choices we've made, and whether or not uh, this pandemic that's impacting the um, equities as severely as it has could be detrimental to our own financial future. All right, we've got Pat back on the line. Pat, been a rough day today again on Wall Street. Yeah, we're alternating thousand-plus point gains and losses, and uh, with the World Health Organization officially calling this a pandemic, that certainly adds to the significant uncertainty already in the markets, and so it was not a well-received message. It, 
if that's the reality we have to live with, we've got to, it's got to translate into Wall Street and how we, how we are emotionally wired to live through this, this, uh, this, uh, this very serious issue. Pat, certainly while perhaps none of us um, can say that we've lived through something like this, probably few still alive that went through the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, um, and certainly nowhere near the level of sophistication with things like Wall Street in 1918, the way it is today. Uh, And yet there are times which we have lived through, difficult times. Gulf War One, the second Gulf War, um, the economic downturn and Great Recession of 2008-2009. So while we haven't gone through a pandemic, we have gone through difficult economic times. What kind of lessons learned do you think from even the events of just 11, 12 years ago that investors and retirees ought to be applying from those experiences then to this experience now? You know, we are so emotionally wired, even in, in the best of times, and we've seen study after study of, 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 of people making just really bad decisions. It's like when you go to Macy's and you see something on sale and you say, no, I'm not going to buy it now. I'm going to wait till it, till it goes back on regular price. It's kind of our thinking when we get to the investing world. We're, we're kind of protective of our, of our net worth. We're protective of our money. We work hard for our money, and so we, we act a little irrationally, and frankly, if you are young enough and you've got time on your side, meaning a year two or three, uh, it, it is my view that this crisis will pass. We hope with minimum death and minimum illness, we're not, we're not trying to make light of, of even one death. One death is, is way too many, but we've got to be calm, and normalcy will return. It may be a month, it may be two months, it may be six months, but the backdrop of all this hysteria, if you will, is a very strong economy, and the metrics we were measuring ourselves against just a month ago were the most superlative in the history of keeping track of all these numbers. So it's hard to believe that in a month's time, this great economy has gone down so much, but emotionally, and then you add in computer trading, uh, Craig, when, when some numbers hit at stock prices at lower values, computers are, are, are programmed to sell, sell, sell. And so it kind of compounds on itself. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. The more it goes down, the more it will go down. Even if John and Mary on the street aren't buying or selling, it's the computer trading and all the algorithms that have been designed over the years to buy or sell when it hits certain certain points uh, in, in a 52-week high or low position just exacerbates the already high emotion in the market. And certainly, Pat, while well, none of us directly saw this coming, uh, I, I want to hasten to observe that on your program, Don't Invest and Forget, which, by the way, for listeners, can be heard Saturday mornings at 8 o'clock on our sister station, Business Radio 1220 KDOW, Monday evenings at 6 p.m. on AM 1220 KDOW. You have been saying for a number of years now, particularly as the bull run, click the the clock across eight years, nine years, 10 years, 11 years. At 10 years, you started saying, you know, uh, at some point, this gravy train may pull into the station. And you had long warned 
that it may take nothing more than a simple geopolitical issue that could, in fact, be the trigger to bring the bull run to an end. Now, you probably had more in mind things like wars, rumors of wars, things of that sort. Um, But I think this certainly fits in that category of perhaps um, fulfilling of your observation that at some point this probably would end and potentially now wondering whether or not um, in uh, in bear territory this could begin to trigger a recession here of some sort in the United States because in spite of all the stellar numbers, now, of course, you have all these industries that have been hard hit. If you're in the hospitality business or airline and travel industry, these are not good times. No, you're right. And, and, and you never know what is going to be the trigger. We thought it was going to be North Korea. We thought it was going to be Iran, Iraq. We thought it was going to be impeachment. You know, we had, we had all those stories we kept watching over the last couple, couple three years. And it's always been said, it, the, the, what's going to trigger it is something you never see coming. And of course, no one saw this COVID-19 coming, but uh, when you when you hit 10, 11 years in a bull, bull market, uh, it is understandable that it will it will go down. Uh, not that we're hoping for it. And I had lots of calls from the show that said, "Geez, you almost sound like a pessimist. You're trying to you're trying to uh, jinx the market." And I said, "Well, thank you for your observation, but it's just reality. Bull, bull markets come to an end. This is a pretty darn abrupt." Whether we go into recession, whether this is a real bear market or just a bump in the road, uh, we'll know in the next uh, 30, 60, 90 days. Uh, but if you're contributing to your 401K or your IRAs, well, go back and look at your allocations, and if you've got time on your side, this could be, depending on your risk appetite, and again, if you want to come in for that consultation in any one of our Bay Area offices, we'd be glad to review that with you. But emotionally, these are very difficult times. And understandably, people get ir- irrational and they sometimes pull a trigger that they wish they hadn't. Uh, it, it just goes in the direction as all the other crises you mentioned at, at the top of your show. We've been through all those issues. And thankfully, um, commerce in America is, is, uh, is a brand that we've learn to love love and and capitalism is the root of the system that that, that seems to work and uh, we will get some some calm after this storm a final question for you pat we know certainly the president uh, has been sparring with jerome powell wanting to pressure the Fed into engaging in more reductions in the overnight lending rate, which can have its pluses and its minuses to it. Today, the administration suggested they're going to consider giving taxpayers an extension uh, to the deadline to pay their taxes because of COVID-19 and even floated the idea of a temporary reduction in the payroll tax in order to help bring some relief. Uh, Any of these measures, in your opinion, significant enough to suddenly cause the market to bounce back up in the uh, northern direction by uh, four or 5,000 points? You know, it very well could. It, it's been said at the next uh, Federal Reserve meeting, Federal Reserve may reduce rates anywhere from three quarters to one point. This is on top of the half point reduction just a week or so ago. Wow. So there's real evidence in the world for this slowing of the economy. And certainly China and Japan and Italy or other countries that have had significantly more incidents of COVID-19, but no, all those things you just named, the payroll tax reduction, the extension of uh, uh, a filing tax date, most importantly, the, the, um, the structural change of 
three quarters to one point reduction in in interest rates. Wow, that would create a flood of of, of refis right now. Mortgage companies are are bombarded with requests for for refinancing of homes, but think of the research and development that corporations will now uh, get involved in and commit more money if they can borrow money at 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 these inexpensive cheap cheap uh, prices. It will, in fact, um, give this give this economy the kick it needs, perhaps, to get to get back on track. All right. Time will tell. We'll watch it. Pat Vitucci will no doubt be there to report on it. Pat, we appreciate your time and the insights. Pat Vitucci with Vitucci and Associates. He made reference to that complimentary financial health and retirement plan review. Boy, what a good time for that, huh? No cost or obligation. Triple eight plan wise. That's eight 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 P L A N W I S E or online at don't invest and forget dot com to make your appointment. Our thanks to Pat Vitucci. Five eighteen right now. Let's step aside. Get you updated on traffic right now from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Come back to the conversation. It is 521, and uh, boy, it seems as if with all the news concerning what's going on with the Wall Street uh, reaction to COVID-19 and and certainly um, the announcement by the World Health Organization today officially declaring this a pandemic, that there's nothing else going on in the world of news. But in reality, uh, (laughs) we're in an election cycle. And uh, what's happening with all that? Well, let's get an update. We're joined by Dr. Lonnie Chen. He is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution and director of domestic policy studies and lecture at the public policy program at Stanford University. And Dr. Chen, always great to have you on the program. I, I suppose, particularly in light of what's going on in the news, uh, that uh, this may potentially play a bit of a role into what's happened with Bernie Sanders' bid for the presidency. And, and I suppose part of that may have a tie-in to his eagerness to create a, a national health care program that I suspect, under the given current medical crisis, may not exactly be the best program for us. No, I don't think it is. I think you're right that, that Bernie Sanders has suffered quite a bit because of his advocacy of the so-called Medicare for All program. And, you know, I, I think the best example of what a Medicare for All style program would do to our health care system, given the coronavirus, is what's happening in the United Kingdom. You know, what's happening there right now is really something else. Uh, a New York Times article recently, in fact, reported that what's happening in the United Kingdom is they're having to ration care and they're having to limit access to things like ventilators to only those who are most critically ill. And I think if that kind of program were to come to the U.S., boy, I, I, I wouldn't want to see it during a time of crisis like the one that we're in now. Boy, isn't that true? And of course, ironically, in good times, in normal times, we often hear people advocating for a nationalized health care system, pointing to places like Great Britain as just the stellar place, and they've got the thing, you know, <laughs> dialed in perfectly. But it doesn't take into consideration the what-ifs. And if we've ever seen a medical what-if, we're in it right now, aren't we? Did we lose them there? Dr. Chen, did we lose you? I'm going to bet I think the circuit dropped there. Oh, there I'm, you are. Hello? Yep, go ahead. I'm here. I'm sorry. I, I lost you there for a second. No. Yeah, you know, I think I think it's easy in, in good times to say, look, you know, what we actually need is we need the system that everybody can get access to. But 
what what really tests the health system is not when times are good, it's when times are tough. And I think you're seeing that in the United Kingdom. You're seeing that in, in all sorts of different places around the world. Yeah, undoubtedly so. I mean, even as we're grappling with one of the most sophisticated medical systems in the entire world to try and figure out how to respond, how to react, how to contain, imagine less sophisticated nations or those that are trying to work on this, uh, you know, now serving number 365 and, uh, you know, all the healthy people move to the back of the line sort of approach to health care that has is even been suggested by countries that don't engage in that methodology, like Germany, where today, Angela Merkel said, you know, before it's all over with, 70% of Germans could end up being exposed to coronavirus. Now, imagine if that happened to the United States population, and we were already rationing health care in normal times. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's why the the things that we're doing now, particularly here in Bay Area, to uh, you know, encourage social distancing and canceling events. I know it's inconvenient for people, but it is important because it helps our healthcare system to ensure that it can fulfill the demand that's going to be out there. And we do have the most advanced healthcare system in the world. You know, when people talk about the mortality rate or how many people die from coronavirus, there's no question it's a serious disease. But I, I would bet our, I'd put our healthcare system up against any other healthcare system in the world and say, you know, look, e- even if other healthcare systems are having challenges, I like our chances with our health care system, but, you know, there are those out there who are advocating to fundamentally change it, like Bernie Sanders, and I just think that's absolutely the wrong approach. Uh, what is your sense? You, you come from a background of, of expertise in the arena of public policy. What is your sense, Dr. Chen, insofar as how we're handling this so far? Um, some are suggesting, for example, San Francisco now announcing no gatherings of above 250 people, or 1,000, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, Washington State, nobody above 250. Uh, some are saying these draconian efforts. Um, others are saying why we waited so long. Overall, what's your sense? I realize it varies from state to state, but overall, do you think the public policy approach to this has been the right one? Look, I, you know, I think we are doing the best we can under the circumstances. I, I, I think it's a challenging time. Uh, each jurisdiction is going to have to decide what's best. So when the folks in Washington State say, look, we're going to restrict it to 250 or, or, or fewer if you want to get together, I think that makes sense given what's happening up there. You know, we're going to have to take probably more serious measures down here in the Bay Area. Santa Clara County is probably going to have to take more serious measures. And, and, and I think it's inconvenient for people. I understand that. And it's not it wouldn't be my preference to have all these cancellations, but the reason that we're doing all this, uh, I think, is to ensure that our health care system can continue to handle, as I said, the demand, but also that we try and stop the spread of this as much as possible. So I would say I think the response at the local level and the state level has been fine. I think the federal response um, needs to be a little bit more aggressive. I think we need to look more seriously at travel uh, restrictions from Europe now, as well as uh, as we're seeing from China and Korea. And, and look, you know, I, again, I know it's going to inconvenience people, but my advice is don't go out of the country right now. You know, I, I, it's, it's an inconvenience, yes, but, um, you know, that's the only way we're going to stop this thing. Yeah, not, not only in terms of slowing the spread, but, you know, who wants to be overseas and then suddenly find out an instant quarantine has been handed down and now you're in a foreign country without access to good medical care and no idea when you might come home. Right. Uh, the president, of right. course, tonight will address a lot of these issues at 6 p.m. Dr. Chen, I know you've got a tight schedule. We appreciate you carving out some time to be with us tonight. 
Thank you for having me on the show. Appreciate it. You bet. Take care. There's Dr. Lonnie Chen. He is, again, research fellow with the Hoover Institution and director of domestic policy studies and lecturer at the public policy program, Stanford University, who, by the way, just went to all online classes just this week. All right, 528 on the clock. We've got to come up around the corner for you. We're going to change topics a little bit. Lisa Thompson is going to join us, VP of Policy and Research for the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. Alabama, um, not necessarily a state that we would consider, comparatively speaking, on the cutting edge, but uh, they do seem to have some forward thinking to a number of public policy issues, and, and this one perhaps one of which is so long in coming and might potentially encourage the rest of the nation to, uh, to sort of wake up. Um, they are or have passed a resolution declaring pornography a public health crisis. Certainly in the day prior to the advent of the Internet, we would have never thought that would be possible. Today, looking at the impact of this on marriage, family, and young children in particular. I know that Lisa will have some some to say about that, but when you look in particular about what it's doing to young people today and the insidious fashion in which pornography can destroy lives, uh, maybe it's time we really start to get serious about this. We're going to talk about it. Lisa Thompson will join us coming up in just a few moments. All right, a lot more ahead, including a look at traffic. We're going to get a look at that traffic for you right now. 5.30 exactly from KFAX and from the KFAX Traffic Center, your look at the ride home. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, well, if that didn't have you... A little bit concerned. Uh, We're just filled with all kinds of exciting news tonight. Let's take it to another level on an entirely different topic, one that's been with us a long time and will undoubtedly out-survive the coronavirus. You know, the issue and debate over pornography is one that we as a culture and society have grappled with for eons. Um, Forget the name of the member of the Supreme Court that once said he couldn't tell you what pornography was, but he knew it when he saw it, you probably have the own, your own sense as well. And there's been talk about how do we judge, what's the yardstick for community standards, and what do we allow and not allow, what comes under the banner of free speech, what doesn't, on and on it goes. To be sure, in the days prior to the advent of the Internet, this was a lot less of a problem. You know, you had to go to the to the bookstore at the end of the street in the ugly neighborhood to go and get your hands on the stuff. Uh, today, you can be innocently Googling something and your six-year-old daughter is suddenly fed up with pornography. It happens. Sadly, with the ease of access has come the increase of the impact. The ability of hardcore porn in particular today to damage relationships, to damage marriages, to impact children is increasing at an alarming rate. So much so that um, Alabama, not exactly a state on the cutting edge of anything, but they've, they've, they've got the right idea here. They have passed a resolution, at least in the Senate there, to declare pornography a public health crisis. Maybe an idea whose time has come. Lisa Thompson joins us, Vice President of Policy and Research at the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. Lisa, thanks for taking time 
to be with us. What is your reaction to this? I, I, I realize that it may more be a gesture of goodwill than anything at this point that has teeth in it. Uh, but at the very least, we finally have a, a, a public concern here acknowledging the fact that we've got a real problem on our hands. Yeah, we are very encouraged um, at the National Center on Sexual Exploitation by states like Alabama and 14 others that have declared pornography a public health crisis. I think um, what we're seeing is a recognition of a, a, a problem that, as you have already articulated, has been going on for quite some time. It's really been percolating, um, growing ra- rapidly, particularly among our young adults and adolescents who are just overwhelmingly being exposed and consuming pornography at very alarming rates. Um, and just to give you a, a sense of context, um, there's one pornography site, um, one of the largest in the world, which reports that just last year, 42 billion visits were made to its website alone, 42 billion. And we know that the U.S. is the largest user of this website. And there's no way that, you know, children, unless parents are incredibly savvy and, you know, very rigorous in making sure they have all these protections in place, most kids are getting exposed to content like on this site or other sites uh, through at schools, you know, from other classmates, uh, siblings, uh, you know, who come back, come home and, uh, and share this information with other young people. And the stuff that they're seeing is really staggeringly um, bad. It's very, uh, very brutal. Um, lots of just extreme sex being portrayed, body punishing sex, and w- sex that's um, dehumanizing. And we're just so concerned about how this is affecting the sexual templates of our young people. So, uh, at any rate, to say, you know, we're, we're encouraged by what Alabama is doing and other states too in recognizing this because it's really laying a, a groundwork for deeper policy work that um, states could do to address this issue. Um, just to give you a little point of contrast, um, in the United States, only about 14% of adults currently smoke, but we know that so many young people are, um, and young adults are using pornography. We're, we're seeing reports from around the world in some places that 100% of males have seen pornography, and of them, like a huge chunk are using pornography as much as on a daily basis. So... Um, in the U.S., we're, we're seeing numbers of males using pornography in the high 90s. In some, in some studies, um, other studies suggest that uh, females are using it at high rates too, uh, not as high as boys, but also really growing, um, you know, upwards of 50 and 60% in some cases. So you have young people using this material, encountering it frequently, using it frequently, and we know that there's a lot of harms associated with its use. And this is what really gets concerning. You have such massive exposure, and yet this material is linked to so many harms, things like depression and um, anxiety, uh, risky sexual behavior, and then you move on to things like even brain-related changes that mirror um, addiction Um, so that can actually change the brain's structure and function. There are studies which show that that, uh, people who become compulsive consumers of pornography actually have less gray matter. (laughs) 
that they have less co- executive control of their of their brain mental functions. Um, that the, because what's happening is uh, overuse of pornography. It can it it makes uh, for well, it overcomes the people's reward systems in their brains. They become uh, just I guess what's the word hyper hyperactive. Uh, in a way, and then people, they just have such a time wrestling and overcoming these compulsive behaviors that because the neurology of their brain is literally being impacted. Craig, are you there? As you, as you talk about that, that impact on the adults and the inability of adults to be able to differentiate it and be able to kind of manage this and understand fact from fiction and, and uh, you know, how, how it begins to move from fantasy life creeping into affecting real life. Imagine then the challenge here, Lisa, for young people. Uh, a child, we're hearing about kids that are six, seven, eight, year, nine years old that got easy access to the Internet, and suddenly you're getting bombarded with this stuff, and you've got ten, kids that are in their preteens getting hooked on it. So if it's difficult for the adults, I can't imagine what's happening for kids. Yeah, it's interesting that you raised that. Um, we Just within the, like, the last six weeks or so, uh, we received an email from a colleague who said she was seeking help for a mother of a 10-year-old who needed help for his pornography addiction. And this is not isolated. I mean, we, we know therapists, we work with therapists who serve children um, who are wrestling with compulsive be- sexual behaviors, or we work um, and are good friends with folks who provide uh, another program is like a wilderness uh, therapy program with for young children, um, you know, teens who are, st- who are struggling with compulsive sexual behaviors, can't get, can't beat these pornography addictions, and so they're going to these um, really intensive wilderness therapy programs in, uh, in order to try to overcome their addiction. Um, it's it's a staggering problem, and it, it leads to other issues like child-on-child harmful sexual behavior, which is something we're also gravely concerned about. Uh, it actually turns out that you know while there's a lot of con- you know justified concern about sexual abuse of, a, of children by adults in school, it's more likely, in fact, seven times more likely, that children are the, going to be the perpetrators of sexual abuse on children more than adults. So when you have something like this that's, that's being exposed to children, children are in the stage of learning, right? They're absorbing all this information around them. They're seeing behaviors. They mimic behaviors. So it only stands to reason that some children when they get exposed to this kind of content, are going to act it out on the others around them. So another one of our major areas of concern is the impact of pornography on child-on-child harmful sexual behavior. $64 million question here, Lisa, and I know it's a no easy answer, but uh, what do we do? I mean, a declaration here, a resolution, and and the acknowledgement publicly, I think this is a, a good first start. But in terms of really being able to practically deal with this, what do we need? Do we need to change the laws? Do we need to revisit how we define First Amendment rights? Well, one of the things that I think most people don't recognize is that we actually have very good laws about uh, pornography. Uh, they're called obscenity laws, and most states have them. And in fact, we have a really good federal obscenity law. It's just been that the fact that the Department of Justice has just decided it's not going to prosecute obscenity. The distribution 
of pornography on the internet is statutorily illegal. You know, I should say hardcore obscene pornography, any content that would rise to the level of obscenity. And I think for most communities, what's out there today would would definitely rise to the level of obscenity. So uh, most of the hardcore pornography that's out there could be prosecuted if our U.S. Department of Justice decided it actually cared and wanted to do that. Um, and, you know, I think it's interesting that we have seen such a rise in um, the, the absolutely just extreme amount of child pornography or what we call child sexual abuse material uh, available on the Internet. And these two things aren't, um, they, they're connected, right? They're, they're not just operating in, independently of each other. The fact that we have allowed um, the Internet to become awash in hardcore pornography. You've got people using that material. They become um, conditioned to that material. They go looking for other material. They escalate to things that are more extreme, and oftentimes that's going to lead them down the path to child pornography. And there's a fantastic series of articles that the New York Times has been reporting about this, the absolutely overwhelming problem of child sexual exploitation and these images that are circulating on the internet and people are throwing almost throwing up their hands because they can't possibly arrest all the individuals who are consuming child pornography these days and our argument is that this is this problem exists the child the the problem of child sexual uh, exploitation images exists because the federal government the department of justice has failed to prosecute adult obscenity because you, you can't, adult obscenity is what um, is going to lead a certain number of people who use that material to go down paths and create a demand for more extreme content. And that's going to lead, uh, tragically, many people to child pornography. Lots of work so, ahead, no doubt. And, uh, you know, I think this is a good, certainly a good first, uh, good first step. More information available on this topic. Get educated, get involved, and get informed endsexualexploitation.org. That's endsexualexploitation.org. Our thanks to Lisa Thompson. Thompson, get that right. (laughs) Vice (laughs) President of Policy and Research for the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. Lisa, thanks for your time today. All right, 547. We're a bit late. Let's get you caught up on some traffic here. We'll swing over to the KFAX Traffic Center for an update. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It was in the fall of last year, arguably some even say as far back as October or November, when the first suspicious cases of upper respiratory infection started showing up before doctors in the Chinese city of Wuhan. Initially, they weren't sure. Does this look like cases of the flu? Is this cases of bronchitis, pneumonia? They didn't know, but they knew something didn't seem right. And some doctors called attention to it. And as a result, got slapped back by Communist Party officials. We're told to keep working and shut up. Some cases were threatened. The very first doctor who raised a specter of concern over this, has now succumbed to Corona-19. And while the rest of the world is busy trying to figure this out and stop it from spreading, the propaganda machine 
in Beijing has a bit of a different agenda going on. Not just to say, nothing going on here, not nearly as bad here as you think, but to say the real culprit is not China. That they, in fact, are victims of another state, another player in this deadly game. Let's find out. Claudia Rosette joins us, Foreign Policy Fellow with the Independent Women's Forum. And am I really reading this right, even after we've had such an abundance of evidence of where Patient Zero came from and where this began, and even China admitting so, that now that's just too much for the officials in Beijing, that uh, President for Life Jinping just can't live with the notion that China gets blamed for this, so what, crank up the propaganda machine? Yeah, well, they've actually turned around the whole propaganda narrative into into Orwell land, where what they've done, they haven't officially blamed it on the U.S. They haven't said in so many words an accusation. What they've done is much sleazier and much more typical of how this can be handled in China. The Communist Party has put out sort of piece by piece, step by step, these insinuations First, that it didn't, well, we don't really know where it began. Well, that's not true. It began in China. It it emerged in Wuhan. It came from something there. Whether a lab, an animal, we don't know, in part because China has not allowed in any outside experts to find out. And China, if they know what, if they know, they aren't saying. But they've then sort of piled on these insinuations, uh, quoting from, a ridiculous report in Japan saying, oh, maybe the U.S. military brought it to the military games in Wuhan last October, Um, then rolling out one of their more venerable virologists to say, well, we don't really know where. It could have didn't necessarily come from China. And on and on. Meantime, they've been stoking these rumors on the Internet, sort of where people, the, the officially allowed Internet in China, that it came from America. It didn't come from China. And at this point, that's sort of the propaganda story circulating. So what Xi Jinping has done is having suppressed the information that would might have stopped this outbreak at the source, so you wouldn't be sitting there right now watching everything in your life being canceled and told to stay in your house. <laughs> uh, China, let it happen. Let it roll. Um, arrested the doctors who tried to warn about it, lied about it, saying it was not transmittable between people for weeks. And when finally they couldn't ignore it anymore because it's a virus, you can't really make that entirely go away with propaganda, then they slammed the gates on the entire city of Wuhan, on 60 million people in the province and around, and then they began revising in the propaganda this narrative. So now the story that they're feeding back into China is... Well, it might have come from America. And in the meantime, they've also been pushing to stop anyone from referring to it as Wuhan virus, which Secretary of State Pompeo quite correctly did. It came from Wuhan, the same way Ebola comes from right by the Ebola River in Africa. Uh, but they're now saying someone's racist to say it's the China coronavirus. Uh, I'd be fine if people want to call it the Communist Party coronavirus. But it's not racist. It's accurate. 
interesting irony in all this is imagine if things were just a little bit different uh, 30 years ago uh, during the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, which, uh, of course, ended up uh, shutting down an entire town and uh, uh, impacted the lives of tens of thousands of people, and largely because rather than the communist authorities in Moscow being upfront about what had happened and warning the world and warning their own citizens, uh, they tried to distract, deny, diffuse. And I guess the only thing missing from that element is I don't recall uh, once the news finally leaked out because the radiation levels globally were on the rise and somebody said something's happened. I guess the only shortcoming is that Mikhail Gorbachev failed to turn around and blame it on the United States. <laughs> He might, yeah, they might still have the Communist Party and the Soviet, the Soviet Union might still be there. Isn't that amazing? Actually, that's what I'm afraid what, what of in, China. What, what, in your yeah. opinion, Claudia, is dangerous about this? I mean, you've already suggested that they don't want to have outside um, uh, epidemiologists come in to take a look at this, uh, which I think is problematic because obviously the closer you can get to the source and patient zero, the greater the likelihood is to be able to come up with some sort of a response or a vaccine to it. But beyond that, what are some of the other dangers of them not just uh, stalling, but actually trying to shift blame? Well, part of it is that people forget this came from China, and we've seen so many threats out of China, especially with the rise of Xi Jinping, the president for life, as you pointed out, who had the term limits on his uh, rule lifted in 2018, and that we forget is one of the big dangers, that it all gets sort of muddied. In fact, today, the World Health Organization finally, you know, now that it's in more than whatever, well over 100 countries, declared it a pandemic. I have been wondering, I don't know what their motivation was, but they could have done this quite some time ago when it was in, say, 70 countries, or a huge outbreak began in northern Italy. Uh, The timing, I don't know what the reason was, but the timing certainly was They waited until the numbers began to really soar in the United States. So it's sort of more and more divorced in these narratives from China. And it's just, oh, the world had this virus. No, it's really important to remember it was the suppression, censorship, and brutality and self-grandiosity of the Chinese Communist Party that let this thing get out of the barn and start to spread to where it's now affecting your life right now. You're, You're getting a taste of... China's Communist Party, that's the way to think of this virus. And uh, some of the other dangers, um, I, this could have all sorts of knock-on effects. We don't know how bad this is going to get here. It could affect the election in November. Um, we, uh, China has not been enthusiastic, doesn't like the way that President Trump has actually called them out on their enormous military buildup, on their theft of intellectual property, of, of all sorts. I mean, they... they, they uh, the former the head of the chemistry department at Harvard University was arrested recently on charges. You know, we wait to see. He's presumed innocent until they reach some decision in this case. But uh, the, the criminal complaint from the Department of Justice says that he was basically suborned by China. They bribed him. That's mm-hmm. the allegation. They paid him a lot of money to set up a laboratory in Wuhan, nonetheless, where his specialty is the kind of thing that can be used for military purposes. China is building a huge military. So there's a lot of a lot to worry about if people now forget, because it all becomes covered in this propaganda story. Another thing to worry about is going to the awful matter of biological weapons. Um, we don't know where this came from. And my own 
guess, and it really is a guess, I stress, is that it was an accident in their laboratory. Possibly they were playing around with animals and then sold them to a market for food for money, something like that. But uh, if we sort of set aside that question and just look at directly at the fact that China almost certainly does have a biological weapons program. The State Department puts out a report every year saying, well, it sure looks like they might. You know, we can't confirm this. I think we should take it as a given that they do. We know that they did in years gone by. And they play, they've had all sorts of crazy things going on with uh, scientific experimentation as President Xi Jinping pushes his scientists to win Nobel Prizes because China doesn't have a lot of those. And uh, I would worry on two counts there. One is if they assuming they do, and I think they do, have a biological weapons program, what are the chances that they never have an accident or a leak from that, Well, that, even that's, if this wasn't? Yeah, that, that, um, that, and, that's a very valid yeah. point there, I think, that, that you know, we, we can't ignore that, you know, we have no evidence of it. It's just, it's just hearsay at this point. But the fact that there is a biological weapons manufacturing site in Wuhan may be the cause of some concern as well. Claudia Rossette, I appreciate the time. We're out, of, we're out of it for this segment. Claudia Rossette, Foreign Policy Fellow with the Independent Women's Forum. Information on the web at iwf.org. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Very special concert coming to the San Francisco Bay Area, Saturday, March the 21st at Shiloh Church in Oakland. It's called the Floodgate Concert. And, of course, a great list of artists that will be performing, including Sonny Badoo, Jonathan Nelson, J.J. Harrison, Kathy Wade, and hosted by Sayee Brown. All this taking place again Saturday, March the 21st at 5 p.m. at Shiloh Church. That's located at 3295 School Street in the city of Oakland. In addition to some phenomenal entertainment, it's also going to be a very special book launch for a brand new publication called Dare to Color Outside the Lines. And joining me now is its author, Dr. Noja Wadiyale. Dr. Wadiyale, tell us a bit first about this book. I love the title, Dare to Color Outside the Lines, the notion that I think a lot of us tend to sort of be limited by our lack of vision sometimes. Maybe we're not willing to take risks in life. Give us a bit of a sense of your inspiration behind writing this book. Yeah, uh, one of the uh, major inspiration is to really break the self-limit uh, imposed on ourselves. Uh, most people impose on themselves uh, some limitations, not because they cannot achieve, but they have put themselves in that uh, cocoon to believe that uh, attaining to a certain height is beyond their reach. So, and uh, the, the book, Dare to Color Outside the Line, is an excellent resource for anyone desirous of getting to the next level, irrespective of where they are in their spiritual walk with God. Uh, this book also provides practical applications using biblical principles and character studies to establish strong healthy and fulfilling lives for the readers. I believe it is a must read for anyone that is also seeking to be recharged and encouraged to expand their horizon. 
uh, it will help them to see their blurry spots, thereby avoiding missing the mark or settling for less than their best. It is a motivational risk to elevate their game to the fullest potential. You know, I'm reminded of the passage of Scripture that tells us that without vision, my people perish. And so often that can be so problematic that maybe childhood experiences, maybe times when a person has tried and failed, and as a result, they get discouraged. And without the appropriate motivation and the kind of positive encouragement that's necessary to take life to the next level, to step out in faith, I I guess this can be a major stumbling block where people not only fail to achieve their very best in their relationship with God, they fail to achieve their very best even in their horizontal relationships with their spouse, with family, with others in their life. Correct. Uh, when you look at the scriptures, yeah, look at the life of Gideon. Uh, even when God saw Gideon as a mighty man of valor, he saw himself as the most disqualified person. He felt he was from the, uh, the least tribe. He's from the least family, and even within his family, he was the least of all of the siblings. So all he was seeing was all the limitations that would prevent him from attaining to that greatness, whereas God was seeing him from that place which he originally ordained for him as an individual. So most times we limit ourselves by uh, just claiming what we ordinarily shouldn't have been uh, looking at. Your subtitle to the book is Reaching Beyond Your Abilities, which suggests, I think, not only some some growth opportunity, but also uh, suggests a heavy reliance upon God, sort of the experience of stretching our faith. Is that true? Correct. Yeah. One of the most limiting thoughts we have as individuals is our mindset. You know, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. There is something, you you produce what you are exposed to. You produce what you allow to come inside of you. So the mind is a very powerful tool. And uh, the truth is, the, the, with the question I ask people, do you see obstacles as an opportunity for elevation, or you see it as a stumbling block preventing you from discovering your purpose in life. You know, one of the reasons people operate below their potentials is because they have not discovered their purpose in life. Once you discover your purpose, there will be a renewed passion which will help you reach and fulfill your potential. We mentioned, Dr. Wadiale, that this is going to be launched at a very special concert coming up Saturday, March the 21st at Shiloh Church, that's located at 3295 School Street in Oakland. It'll be at 5 o'clock, and tickets, by the way, are available online for listeners at thefloodgate.org. That's thefloodgate.org. Tell us a bit about this unique group of artists that you've brought together under the banner of the Kingdom Builders Club. Right. So Kingdom Builders is a community-based marketplace ministry. Uh, The goal of Kingdom Builders is to help uh, build uh, marketplace champions whose excellence will help attract others to the kingdom. 
Uh, most times people equate Christianity to mediocrity, which is not the thing or the, the essence of God's desire for mankind. He's called us to dominate. He gave us the mandate to dominate. So uh, we want to use this event also to launch other things that Kingdom Builders will be doing. Uh, so we are deliberate on the uh, stars we chose for this event, uh, Sonny Badu, uh, JJ, and uh, Jonathan Nelson. These are great guys who have showcased God's excellence in their own uh, career as uh, gospel musicians. So we chose for them to come. This is just one of the few events uh, Kingdom Builders Club is going to be doing uh, in coaching people uh, to help them attain their dominion authority in whatever self-influence they find themselves. And of course, as we mentioned, this uh, event is also going to serve as the launch for your brand new book, Dare to Color Outside the Lines. Again, the concert and gathering coming up Saturday, March 21st, 5 p.m. at Shiloh Church at 3295 School Street in Oakland. It's the Floodgate Concert presented by the Kingdom Builders Club. And tickets are available right now at thefloodgate.org. That's thefloodgate.org. We've got a pair of tickets and a book to give to callers number 11 and 12 right now at 888-367-5329. That's 888-367-5329. Call right now. And be callers number 11 and 12. You'll receive a pair of concert tickets and a copy of this brand new book, Reaching a Bond, Your Abilities, by Dr. Noja Wadiale. Again, call 888-367-5329. Tickets available right now online at thefloodgate.org. That's thefloodgate.org. And Doctor, it seems to be a wonderful opportunity not only to come together to enjoy wonderful performances, a time of, of ministry and praise and worship together, and of course, um, launching for the uh, your new book, Dare to Color Outside the Lines. Folks, coming to this event on Saturday, March the 21st, ultimately, what kind of experience are you hoping they'll walk away with? Oh, it's uh, the experience we want everyone to walk away is to have an encounter with God. You know, it's going to be a time of worship and uh, great impartation. So uh, it's our desire that everybody will live there transformed and touched by the worship experience they will get. An exciting opportunity to take your life to the next level. Dare to Color Outside the Lines by Dr. Noja Wadiale. And again, the book launch event along with the special concert. Saturday, March 21st, 5 p.m. at Shiloh Church in Oakland. Details and you can reserve your seats online right now at thefloodgate.org. That's thefloodgate.org. Dr. Noja Wadiale, thank you so much for being with us today on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Many of you out there perhaps are uh, part-time gardeners or like to uh, 
What's the word? Not tweak. I'm trying to think. What is it? What is the proper, appropriate term here, Jarrell? You 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 love to meddle around in the garden. <laughs> uh, your spouse might say occasionally killing plants. Uh, certainly, that's uh, that's one of my uh, badges that I wear none too proudly. But uh, you know, then again, you might have some luck and success once in a while. You certainly know that there are times and seasons when older plants, more mature plants. Uh, begin facing some growth challenges. Uh, seemingly, no matter how much water you feed them or how oftentimes you uh, turn them to make sure they're facing the light, uh, their leaves begin to get yellowed. Uh, the edges perhaps begin to, to grow brown. There is a lot less new growth, and the older growth, quite frankly, is looking dingy, tired, and worn out. So what do you do? Is there a way in which you can revitalize and bring new life to that plant and hope that it will um, somehow will carry on further? Well, one of the big methods is plants like that oftentimes become uh, root-bound, particularly when they're potted plants. And so it requires going in, uh, removing the potting uh, around them, uh, trimming the root, which sometimes can be a painful process, and then, of course, replanting that plant in new soil, fresh fertilizer, lots of water, lots of sunlight, And the vast majority of times, in fact, that replanting process, as time-consuming and perhaps painful as it might be in shock to the plant initially so, can be the long-term solution to giving that plant a new lease on life. Let's think of that same analogy when it comes to churches and church planting. Does it sound familiar? A congregation that's been around for many, many years, many generations, and at the edges is starting to look sort of drab and dreary and tired. There is no new growth, and so oftentimes the decision comes, gee, is it time to just put that plant out of its, or that church, out of its misery, or are there things that we can do to replant that church in a similar fashion the way we do a replanting of a plant, a house plant, to give it a new lease on life. Well, my next guest tonight, I think, would suggest the answer is absolutely so. He is a gardener of sorts, a missionary, uh, author, and um, professor at uh, Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama. He spent uh, years in Bangkok, Thailand, and um, works as a, a church an advisor in many respects, helping churches discover how a dying congregation can grow once again. The book is called Replant, How a Dying Church Can Grow Again. Dr. Mark Devine, great to have you on the program tonight. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. This is a, this is a painful process, isn't it? Uh, number one, I think oftentimes painful for congregations to admit uh, that they are in fact uh, facing a very uncertain future it really can be and um, uh, I really didn't set out to become sort of a you know a church a consultant or a fixer but uh, once I became a professor and could no longer serve as full-time pastor I found myself really not knowing what to do with myself and so I ended up becoming uh, an in uh, a serial interim pastor for churches that are without a pastor and then after the first couple of those, I really found myself in a new, uh, exciting ministry uh, with a growing mission field because 80% of churches in North America are declining. And I really found myself um, really looking at these churches very differently than it is just a way station for the next pastor, but trying to think, well, wait a minute, this church has been declining for so long, they've had one pastor after another, 
is there something I can do in my unique position, since I don't want to stay permanently, that might help this congregation grow again? And I haven't always been successful, but it's really been exciting uh, to try to help in these ways. You speak throughout the book of your experiences, specifically at um, the Calvary Baptist Church. Let's talk a bit about that. Uh, this is a church that you describe as having been in its third decade of decline, and, and certainly one of the big indicators that there was lots of trouble afoot. It went through the totality of eight pastors, four permanent, four interim, in just 10 years. That, that's, what, like a year and a half or so per pastor? That certainly doesn't bode well in terms of the healthiness of that church or <laughs> the very least the stick to it to this uh, of those called to lead. I'm told that the average pastorate now, tenure of a, of a pastor in churches today in North America, hovers around two years. That's hard to believe. But um, it really is an indication of sort of the uh, the, the pathology, the lack of vision, uh, and the difficulties. And what happens oftentimes in these churches is that after the first two or three pastors uh, stay a very short time and leave, um, the, the congregation itself lapses into a pattern of behavior that prevents it from being led. Inevitably, uh, highly motivated laypersons, often very well-meaning, begin to occupy leadership turf that really belongs to a pastor, and these congregations become, without even realizing it, virtually unleadable. And so for all the good intentions that many might have and the pockets of ministry that often exist in these churches, they're really, they've rendered themselves uh, resistant to any real visionary, uh, strong pastoral leadership, and usually until that uh, is changed. It usually is. Most of these churches never come back. Well, in, in, in all fairness, uh, Dr. Devine, you, you speak in the book of, of the fact that there had been individuals that were in these positions, and I would imagine to the greatest degree, many of them um, out of necessity. When we look at that high degree of turnover, I mean, suddenly from transitioning from one pastor to another, there are areas of need and care within uh, the greater life and body of the church and pastoral ministry that need time and need attention. And so uh, it would seem like a lot of these folks might have stepped into those positions, uh, probably of, of good heart and will. But then uh, what are you suggesting? Something happens along the way where they they kind of uh, dig their heels in, and suddenly it, it moves from here's a, a deacon so-and-so or sister such-and-such, so God bless her is willing to step in while we're in the middle of a, a crisis here. Pastor's left. We've got an intern pastor who's trying to get the lay of the land, and so they're willing to come in and help out. And then what? It turns into uh, suddenly from um, good-hearted ministry to taking advantage of personal perks and privileges? A lot of the decisions that a pastor might make or lead the congregation to make end up being made by powerful lay people, and they get used to doing that, and they like to do it. And once a congregation sees pastors come and go quickly a few times, they, they are slow to treat the next pastor as though he will be around for, for very long. And therefore, his ability to gain their trust and lead is uh, is greatly diminished. And then if a pastor comes in who's bound and determined to leave, then he faces resistance with entrenched sort of turf, uh, uh, turf battles 
where various people have staked out some turf that uh, they see as theirs and they're protective of it. But as long as the pastor can't lead, uh, you know, if he if he can't have influence on that turf, then he really can't lead the congregation. And these pastors eventually give up and and they go. If you've just joined the conversation, we're talking about a lot of the principles that gardeners use in bringing new life to a dying plant by replanting it. We're all familiar with the concept of church planting. What about the concept of church replanting? Some lessons on how a dying church can grow again. Dr. Mark Devine with us tonight. Maybe your church is going through some of this. Maybe you have individuals in your church that, as Dr. Devine suggests, have stepped in to help out during difficult times and suddenly now are intentionally or otherwise engaged in making decisions and taking on areas of authority, quite frankly, biblically, belong to the pastor, but out of emergency or short-term necessity, they have taken. And suddenly now it's gone from, let me step in to help out, to essentially a usurping of position, authority, and spiritual responsibility that ultimately does not bode well for the life of that church. If you're in that kind of circumstance, you may want to just simply eavesdrop on our conversation. Maybe you want to dive a little bit deeper, and uh, I can understand not wanting to get out on the radio and uh, reveal your name or the church that you're involved with, but time out. 